Change is hard. Is it not? Now, right now, that should have been the loudest amen I'd ever heard out of you group of people. Let's try it again. I mean, I'll even start from back up here, okay? So, change is hard. Hey, glory. Yes. That's right. Change is hard. Let me just show you a little something here. See that slide right there? What do you think's happening in that slide right there? Oh, how did you know that? It is the day after Swedes made the change from driving to the left-hand side of the road to the right-hand side of the road. <laughs> Leave it to Greg Shipley to know that. Doggone. All right. That's, that's what change looks like right there, folks. That is what change looks like right there. But all change is not as, as difficult as that probably was that morning. You know, all change is not that innocuous. It's not that uneventful in a sense. There is also change that is very painful. And sometimes change never really happens in some regard. The struggle to end slavery in Great Britain began in the mid-1700s, approximately 1755 or so. In 1772, the Somerset case picked up the momentum for that, followed by more pressure by the Quakers in 1780s. And then finally, in 1787, William Wilberforce, after a recently, becoming, uh, recently becoming a Christian, began to argue for abolition of the, uh, of the slavery in the British Parliament. Finally, in 1833, one month after he died, they abolished slavery in Great Britain. 1833. The struggle took nearly 80 years to get that law passed. And keep in mind that although the law was passed, it did not change the hearts of the men very quickly. Doing things differently seems unthinkable at times. So, for instance, David Livingston, which our students downstairs read about in their reading series for our M&M program, David, Wilber David Livingston was the great missionary of Africa and the explorer. He was probably one of the first Europeans to ever see Victoria Falls, which it wasn't called that before he showed up, but he, that's what he named it, you know. Come on. There you go. That's how they pictured it, and this is what it looks like. Victoria, he's one of the first Europeans to ever see that, named it Victoria Falls. He went in, he was trying to find the source of the Nile. He, he was an amazing explorer. He went in and also did, you know, he was a gospel missionary. But he records in his writings how the Africans had never milked their goats. And he found that odd. He recorded that they had never eaten the eggs of their chickens while they had eaten turtle eggs. They had eaten crocodile eggs, but they had never dreamed of eating that. He just talked about the differences in culture and how things were dramatically different and how one culture had never considered something that another culture had considered normal. Can you imagine the amazing things 
that men like him, that men like Marco Polo, that Columbus brought back from these places where Europeans had never been before. It's hard to imagine the animals, the plants, the food, the insects, the spices, all that stuff. So tell me something. Can you suggest an example of something that is hard to change? Habits. All right. I need need details. I want gory stuff, all right? Not just general broad lines like that. So tell us one of your habits, Rosanna. Thank you very much since you've outed yourself. What is hard to change? Addictions. All right, good. Getting up an hour earlier now. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you. Eating habits, tough, tough. Perspective, how you look at things, your worldview, that's right. Your opinion of right or wrong, yes, absolutely. Anything else? What else is hard to change? First impressions. Amen. First impressions, thank you. Tim, you say? Attitude, that's right. How we think about things, attitudes. Hard to think, hard things to change. Now, imagine with me a nation. A people, 2,000 years old, with a deep, deep sense of identity. They are called the children of Israel. They can chase their heritage back to one man, Abraham. A man man God called and and gave a promise to him that he would bless all nations through him. In 1988, Charles Krauthammer said this about Israel. He said, Israel is the very embodiment of Jewish continuity. It is the only nation on earth that inhabits the same land, bears the same name, speaks the same language, and worships the same God it did 3,000 years ago. You dig the soil and you find pottery from Davidic times and 2,000-year-old scrolls written in a script remarkably like the one that today advertises ice cream on their corner store. The name Israel derives its name from Jacob, one of those forefathers. His 12 sons were the beginning of the 12 tribes that later developed into a Jewish nation. The name Jew comes from Yehuda or Judah, one of the 12 sons. And the descendants of Abraham, they crystallized into that nation about 1300 B.C. after their exodus from Israel underneath the leadership of Moses. And soon after the exodus, Moses transmitted to the people of his new emerging nation, the Torah, or the Ten Commandments. And so after 40 years of wandering in the desert, worshiping at a tabernacle that is a mobile temple, that is a mobile church, and following after that and letting that be the center of worship, Joshua leads them in to a promised land. And eventually they begin a period of kings. And, this, and then in this period of kings, their identity continues to solidify, to be unified, to become more pronounced as King David comes into the scene. And the first temple is built by Solomon. And then that temple continues to only be one more cement block that can never be removed in the hearts of the people, regardless of its physical stature, that temple has never been removed from the hearts of the children of Israel. 
And so today, the modern Jewish people still have the same language. They still have a culture that's shaped by the heritage passed down over 3,000, 3,500, 4,000 years through generations, starting with Father Abraham. And thus the Jews had this continuous presence in this land. Whether they owned it or not, there were still Jews in Israel all these years. They are the chosen people of God. They have a covenant with him that extends to this day and reserves a special favor on them into eternity. And this relationship with their God has influenced every aspect of their life. What they eat, when they eat it, their clothing, the fabric of the clothing, the number of tassels on their prayer shawl, their calendar, their feasts, their festivals, details about their relationships, where they worship, how they worship, when they worship, their sacrifices, grain, doves, lambs, cattle. Even the physical boundaries of their nation are called out by their God. And their God even went so far as to mark the men of his chosen people with the mark of circumcision. In Genesis 17, he says, My covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And for 2,000 years, they followed these laws, these guidelines, diligently, faithfully, as their life depended upon it. Then, one day, there is a new teaching. One that rises up out of the ancient teaching. It says that the laws and the sacrifices and the foods and the festivals and the worships and the special clothing, the synagogues, and even the temple are not necessary anymore. Tim Keller in his book, Gospel and Life, says, imagines it like this. Imagine early Christians talking to their neighbors in the Roman Empire, and the neighbor says, ah, I hear you're a religious man. Great. Religion is good. It's a good thing. Now, where is your temple or your holy place? Where do you guys go? And the Christian replies, we don't have a temple. Jesus is our temple. And he replies, no temple? But where do your priests work? Where where do they do their rituals? Where do you do that at? We don't have priests to mediate between God and us. Jesus is our priest. No priests. But... All right, well then how do you do sacrifices to acquire favor to God? How do you keep him happy? How do you appease God? We don't need a sacrifice. Jesus is our sacrifice. What kind of religion is this? He asks. And the answer is that the Christian faith is so utterly different than how every other religion works, that it doesn't really deserve to be called a religion. As you think through the minds of a first century Jew who has probably lived in Israel, perhaps lived in Jerusalem, has been faithful their entire life to the laws, the customs, the regulations of Jewish life, and they've been introduced to this Jesus who no longer 
needs a temple, who no longer needs a sacrifice, who no longer needs to observe the Sabbath. All these things are changed now. What can you imagine that Jewish man or woman thinking? What can you imagine that they're thinking? Can you imagine how they are trying to figure this out? How can this be? Can you imagine? Think about this. Can you think about a time when you, when you first tried to do something differently? And I don't know, it could be as simple as like trying to, to write your name, which you've written thousands and thousands of times, but you do it with the other hand this time. It just is wrong. It doesn't work. You can't read it. You don't know how to do it. And while it's such a small, simple illustration as that, consider that now we're talking about a people who every essence of the fabric of their life is being told it's different. It's different now. All things have changed. This is where we're at as we're trying to understand the book of Galatians. This is the discussion that is happening. In some part, this is the surrounding, the environment that chapter 2 of Galatians takes place in. So we're in chapter 2, Galatians. Let's read, let me read part of our passage here for us, and then we're going to explore how everything I just said fits into this. Paul writes, verse 1, reading from the New American Standard. Then, after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation, for fear I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel remained with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those of, of who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised, effectively worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reported to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They also asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. Verse Verse 11, So when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews. Hmm. So, in this passage here, immediately we see, verse 1, that 
Paul is in this place. He is visiting Jerusalem because of a revelation. He's there visiting him. He says, and he said that God gave him the gospel, and no man, remember that we'd read this in chapter 1, and that no man needed to define it or prove it. So he's in Jerusalem, he says here, because of a gospel, because of a revelation, and he's bringing, he's bringing to present this gospel, in essence, to the pillars. You see those pillars down in verse 9, James, John, and Cephas, and Peter. But you notice that in verse 1, he's not alone. He has Barnabas and Titus with him also. Now, take note, you might know this, you might not know this, you notice might say this, you might you know, have read this someplace else, that Barnabas is a Jew, and Titus was a Greek. Now, Paul is not here to affirm the gospel message. He's here to affirm the gospel fruit. He's not here to affirm the message. He's here to affirm the fruit. In that day and time, when there were two main threads of, you know, of ministry, to the Jew and the other to the Gentile, to the circumcised or the uncircumcised, as it is, as he's stated here, what Paul has done is he's brought two converts to Christ, one of a Jew, one of a Gentile, and he's brought them before the pillars. And he begins to say, have a look. This is what I've been doing for 14 plus years, and these are two of the people that are part of my ministry. Have a look. One's a Jew, one's a Gentile. He's like Marco Polo or Livingston, and he brings back after this long trip and goes, look what I found. They call it a monkey. Look what I found. This is a Gentile Christian. See him? If you pull his feathers, he squawks. John Stott says this, It was one thing for the Jerusalem leaders to give their approval to the conversion of the Gentiles. But could they approve of commitment to the Messiah without inclusion to Judaism? Was their vision big enough to see the gospel of Christ not as a reform movement within Judaism, but as good news for the whole world and the church of Christ, as the international family of God? In other words... In other words, what is it necessary, what practices are necessary for a Gentile Christian? Do they need to become Jewish for us to include them? To partake of the Jewish Messiah, how Jewish do you have to be? That's what the Judaizers were coming into in, Genesis, in Galatians 1 here, but he's talking about them presenting a different gospel. He's saying the gospel of Christ is by faith alone, but these men are coming in saying there's, there's faith, but there's more. That's the false brethren of verse 4 that he talks about. So he, in essence, he had the pillars interview Titus, especially this Greek guy. So it's kind of like they're saying, so, Titus, what do you do on Passover? What do you do on Yom Kippur? What were you doing this year at Sukkoth? Did you make a tabernacle? What did you do? Now then, Titus, tell us. This morning, you had eggs and toast. What did you have with it? Bacon? It was a trick question. You're kosher, right? You're not wearing a prayer shawl. 
than the really big question that signifies the Genesis 17 covenant. Do you feel that you have to be circumcised? Can you see these men trying to determine what it means to be a Christian? What it means to be a Jewish Christian and a Gentile Christian? What are the differences between these two? Can two people, one who's Jewish and one is Gentile, claim to be Christian and still be so different? Is that possible? Now, that's why I said everything I did before about change and how difficult it is and the environment that the Jews were coming out of because they had 2,000 years of this is how we do things. And now you're telling us that you can be a part of us? That there's a change? How, how does this work? It's kind of like there's a square peg in a round hole and we don't know how to make them fit. One of these things does not look like the other. What do we do with this? Paul writes that at the end of their time together, they walked away and they said they gave him the right hand of fellowship. And in essence, they're not saying that they just shook on it. There was much more to that. It was, much, it was, it was like, this is right and appropriate. What you're doing is good. And being convinced of this, this change, though, is very difficult. In verse 11, you see that here he speaks about this difficulty of Peter was swayed. In verse 13, he says the rest of the Jews were swayed and even Barnabas was swayed. And can you imagine the impact it would have had if they had become a Jewish church and a Gentile church that had different thoughts on what it meant to be a Christian? That is exactly what Paul is addressing in this chapter. In verse 5, he calls that the truth of the gospel was at stake. Because he wrote in, in Romans, he says in Romans, that the law was a tutor to show that it was impossible to make ourselves acceptable to God. So in other words, he says that all the laws that you had, that if you kept all the festivals and you wore all the right clothes and you ate all the right food and you observed all this stuff, all 600 plus things didn't make you acceptable to God. They just proved you could never be acceptable on your own power. Because you can't keep them. You can't do enough to earn his approval. You can't do enough to gain your way into heaven. You can't do enough to pay for your sins. Because he says, Christ did that. Christ's death on the cross is what makes you approved by God. His blood covers your sin and it makes it so God sees you not as one whose, blood, whose sins are covered, but now he sees you as one who's never sinned. Because Christ's death covers your sins so completely. And so Titus was brought in with this Jewish believer Barnabas, and it was proven that a Gentile can still be in Jesus, in the Messiah, in the Jewish Messiah. And the issues of their day are not the issues of our day at all. Whether we say it or not, you know, they're, they're not our issues at all. And what is a difficult task, I admit, because I'm praying about it, and I talked to the Tuesday discussion group about it, and I've talked to the elders about it, is just that, like, I want to make sure that as we go through this study, we identify what our issues are. We identify what our issues are, that we say that to belong here, you've got to fill in the blank. Now, we come from a variety of of backgrounds, cultures, church cultures, you know, even American cultures, even international cultures. We have people from, who've, who've grown up overseas and come here. 
And so there's a variety of things we come from and we show up and it's like, well, this is, and you walk in the door and you say, these are the things that have to be in place for me to be comfortable here. These are the things that have to be in place for me to believe that this place is about God. And I told you two weeks ago that the most important thing that you need to know about this church, if you're here visiting today, is that there's no way for you to get into heaven except by the sacrifice of Christ and believing in it as your payment for your sins. That's the most important thing you need to know about our church. That's what we believe. It is that belief and nothing more. That's the most important thing. Now then beyond that, there's a lot of loosey-goosey stuff here. It gets very messy very quick. In our Tuesday discussion group, we talked about some people had a hard time coming here and wearing jeans. We've had some people that one individual that got very angry because someone chose to wear a hat. I've been in churches where they've almost went to fists over the color of the carpet. There are many people who find it very difficult to sing hymns instead of choruses, and many people who find it very difficult to sing choruses instead of hymns. What are some of the stuff that you have brought or that you know about that people bring into the church that say, this is what makes church church? Give me some examples. Talk quickly because we're running out of time. Talk to me. Oh, good. Thank you very much. Oh, yeah. This is not a real church because I don't see a cross in here. You're right. That's been, that's been an ongoing topic for 20-some-odd years around here. What else? Offering plate. We don't pass an offering plate, but I can tell you right now, there's a box back there that would gladly accept what you have to put in it. <laughs> can I get an amen? Yeah, that's right. Not passing an offering plate. That's what we choose to do. What else? Letting drunks come in? Amen, brother. And the more, the merrier. Spoken, I just to clarify this for those who are listening on tape, that was a drunk who said that, all right? <laughs> what else? See? Exactly, exactly. It's open communion. We don't have to check you off and make sure you're okay to take communion here. What else? Drinking coffee in the room, that's right. What else? Raising down, either having the freedom to raise your hand or having the freedom to keep your hands at your sides. Absolutely. Yeah. Tony? Clapping after song. Clap if you want to. Don't clap if you want to. That's right. Absolutely. Those are all things that people struggle with. I grew up in a place where if you came to church on a Sunday morning and you were a woman, you need to be wearing a dress. And Sunday nights was a good idea. Wednesday nights were a little bit more optional, if you know what I mean. Betty and I went to church in Dallas, at the Arab Church of Dallas, and they had quite a mixture of cultures in there. And so if you were a woman in there, at the very least, you needed to have your head covered. At the most, it needed to be a full veil, and you sat over with other women while the men sat on the other side. That's how they did church. And we attended there. People do church a lot of different ways. And the difference is, and see, all this stuff here we're talking about is physical stuff. It's stuff you see, it's stuff you taste, it's stuff you, you like look at, touch and hold and feel. But I got to tell you, this stuff is, has a great deal of emotion to it. I was talking with you recently, and one of you were telling me about a family member who's an older gentleman, 
and, and, and he had been in the same church for years and years and years and years. And he was coming to this place where he said, it's getting difficult because of the drums. They're not wrong. But the difference is, is whether you accept drums with grace or as a line to fight over. Whether you accept blue jeans or coats and ties, all that stuff. Because see, the thing is, is none of that stuff really impacts the gospel. It's what we bring to it. And that's what Paul is addressing. I want to bring it home, though, a little closer. Here's a short list of stuff. The difference between religion and a grace-filled gospel. This stuff is the stuff that lies right here. It's not the stuff that we sit in. It's not the stuff we walk on. It's not the stuff we see on the walls. It's not the stuff we see on other people. It's the stuff that lies inside. But this is exactly the kind of stuff we're talking about, about what we bring to our understanding about our faith, the gospel, and grace. I obey, therefore I'm accepted. That's religion. I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Grace says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Now right there, that's the book of James in a nutshell. That is the book of James in a nutshell. We'll get there someday. We're not going to pick on that one today. All right? Religion says motivation is based on fear and insecurity. So I come to church because I'm afraid that I might lose favor with God. I come to church because I'm afraid that the preacher might give me a call that week. I come to church, you know, that's motivation. That's the talk, what he's talking about. Grace says motivation is based on grateful joy. Religion says I obey God in order to get things from God. Now, if you haven't done this, you get a star. But I can tell you, I can, I can start counting off a list of things. I said, dear God, if you'll do this, I'll do that. One of my favorite scenes of a movie that I don't remember anything else about but this is a really old Burt Reynolds movie, back when he was alive, you know, before he was like he is now. And Dom DeLuise was in it. And, it was, and it was, I think it was called The End, and, and Burt Reynolds thinks he, he has a terminal disease that can't be cured. And throughout the whole movie, he's trying to figure out how he wants to end his life so that he doesn't have to die that way. And so finally, he and Dom DeLuise hatch, hatch this plan for him to drown himself. And so he's walking into the ocean. And after he gets out there and the water's like right here at his nose, Dom DeLuise, and you can imagine that, that guy, he's so physically looking funny, is screaming on the shore, you're not dying! Wrong diagnosis! You're okay! And, and, and he's out there in the water, and he kind of, all of a sudden, it reaches, he understands what it says, and he says, to, and he begins to try and get back into the shore before he drowns, and he's making deals with God. Dear God, if you let me get back to the shore, and as he gets closer and closer and closer to the shore, the deal gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And so like, it's like when he's out there in the deep water, it's kind of like, I'll be in church every time the doors are open. And then by the time he gets on the shore, he's a priester. I'll be there Christmas and Easter. I'll see you then, all right? Fear of God is a motivation. 
But grace and the gospel says, I obey God to get God, to delight in him and to resemble him. Religion says, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I am angry at God, since I believe that he only, that I, since I believe that those who follow him deserve only good things. That's what religion says. We struggle with that, don't we? Aren't you finding you're probably more religious than you thought you were as we go through this? I am. When circumstances in my life go wrong, I struggle, but I know all punishment fall on Jesus, and that while my God, my God may allow this for my training, he will exercise his fatherly love within my trial. There's like four or five other things in here. And what it boils down to, I'll, I'll put these out to you. I'll send them out to you this week, and you can consider them. But what it comes out to this is that the very heart of this is that things that are good, we make bad. So, for instance, we take a daily quiet time, and we go from it as being a time of devotion to our God and our Father to being something that qualifies me as being better than you because I got six days in and you only got in three. I feel good about myself because I got in all my quiet times this week. You see what I mean? All of a sudden, a quiet time, a time of daily devotion, has gone from something, a devotion to Christ, to something that's about me. I am qualified now because of what I did. You didn't need to do that to be qualified before him, but you needed to do that to know him better. This is one I heard a long time ago. Really diligent, godly Christians get up early every morning. I don't like any of them. Because <laughs> God didn't make me that way. Really goodly, godly Christians stay up after midnight and do it until 2 a.m. You see, those are things that we say. Those are, you know what? And the thing is, is all this stuff that I'm talking about, I have never heard preached from this pulpit and most any other pulpit. But it's in between the lines. It's the gray stuff. It's what's written in the margin of the page. That's the message we communicate. That's the message where we're saying, this makes us godly, not Jesus. That's what Paul's writing about in this book. That's what he's going to continue to take that onion and unfold it further and further and further. That's what he's saying to us, is that the gospel and grace is not about anything we could ever, 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 ever do to get saved or to remain saved. The gospel says that Jesus saved me and the penalty of, of my penalty of sin was paid for by him, and then to remain saved, it says that he does that and he will never change that. And I don't have to do something, say something, think something, be something, be in this church or anything else to remain saved. It's his grace that holds me there and keeps me there. Now that one, I know, is controversial. But I believe that's what Paul's saying. But that one robs us of any opportunity to participate. And that's what's difficult for us. That's what makes us balk at a true gospel, at a true gospel. Well, let's think about that this week. Think about all the things you're doing this week to be a good Christian and find out whether you're doing it to seek his approval or you're doing it because you know him and love him.
That's what we're talking about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for loving religious people like us. We thank you today for how gracious you are with change. How sweet you are with people who don't get it. Or even maybe we get it, but we don't want it. How long-suffering you are with us. Father, in our study of this book, we continue to plead with you to reveal to us all the ways that we are religious and not graceful. Open our eyes that we see that stuff about ourselves. Help us to repent of it, to confess it, and walk away from it, and ask you to change us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, folks. Thanks very much. If you're a guest, thanks for being here. Glad you're here. Glad you're here. Glad you're here. And uh, we'll see you guys next Sunday, all right?